Welcome back to the Wisconsin Law Reviews podcast, Forward. This week, our panelists will be discussing the restatement of the Law of American Indians, the first restatement of its kind. Our host is Law Review Associate Traeger Metge. The Wisconsin Law Review will be hosting a symposium on this restatement on November 5th and 6th, and we hope that this conversation serves as a useful precursor to the symposium. Hi, my name is Traeger Metke, and I'm an associate on the Wisconsin Law Review. I want to thank and welcome our panelists, Professor Matthew Fletcher, Professor Winona Single, and Attorney Kane Smith, who were generous enough to speak with us about their work authoring the restatement of the Law of American Indians. In this conversation, I will give each panelist an opportunity to introduce themselves before asking about the process of writing the restatement, the purposes it serves, and what to look forward to in the Law Review Symposium. My name is Matthew Fletcher. I'm a professor of law at Michigan State University and a citizen of the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians. And my name is Winona Single, and I'm an associate professor at Michigan State University College of Law. And also, I'm a citizen of Little Traverse Bay Bands of Odawa Indians here in Michigan. My name is Kane Smith. I'm a lawyer at the law firm of Drummond, Woodsum and McMahon in Portland, Maine. We have a national federal Indian law practice. We represent tribes from um, the Northeast to the Southwest to the Northwest and in between. Uh, I mostly focus on litigation with respect to hunting, trapping, fishing rights, reservation boundaries and jurisdictional disputes. Thank you all so much for taking the time today. Um, I think I'd like to start with asking how you got involved in this effort of writing the restatement. Well, I guess I'll answer that. Um, this is Matthew. Uh, I joined the American Law Institute about uh, 11 or 12 years ago, and I went to uh, an annual meeting where six or 700 people in San Francisco were discussing uh, various projects that the ALI could engage in, and I just stood up, put my name out there, and said, um, Fletcher from Michigan, and I think there should be an Indian law project, and they looked at me and said, we, all, we know all about you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, several months later, the executive director of the ALA reached out to me and asked me to uh, start a project. So we did. Well, yeah. we should do our first meeting uh, to talk about how things this might unfold was at the um, Mayflower Hotel, downtown DC, in the colonial room, mind you, of the Mayflower <laughs> Hotel in downtown DC. So there was a great irony as we. Uh, contemplated the prospects for a restatement in that setting. And Matthew uh, led that, as I recall, you know, there was some question about whether it would actually happen or not, whether it was a good idea. And the executive director and other officials of the American Law Institute brought a group together, I think mostly under Matthew's advice, um, some of the top practitioners in the field, uh, professors and judges, and we sat around a table um, for an afternoon and, uh, and talked about how it might work or might not work. There was a fair amount of skepticism from the beginning, I should say. I would believe that. Uh, very fascinating that the irony of the colonial room is where that did take place. Um, so I'm curious, you know, there was some skepticism. This was something that you had to volunteer and push for. Would you mind walking through uh, some of the problems that necessitate a restatement specifically on American Indian law and 
what problems you were looking to solve as you started this process? to speak generally to that. Um, well, one of the issues is that we have such a diverse array of um, jurisdictions in the United States um, who are each attempting to interpret and apply principles of federal Indian law. And oftentimes they do so in a way that is inconsistent with each other um, and in a way that lacks um, an overarching coherence. And so it seemed that the development of a restatement of Indian law was um, very ripe for this area of law, since the purpose of restatements generally is to um, review a field, a specific field of law as a whole, and provide um, some, uh, you know, coherent um, uh, approaches that uh, essentially not just recapitulate the law, um, but also reformulate it in a way that simplifies it and makes it clearer for courts to apply. And so it seemed that that would be um, very, very useful in this area um, of law. I would add that the, if, to the extent that we got pushback from the ALI, it was a concern from some people that um, the American Law Institute traditionally had not engaged in constitutional law. They're mostly uh, working with common law like contracts and torts, property rights. And so this was sort of a new area for them. But the leadership of the ALI was and is very concerned that the ALI is known as sort of a too staid, too tra traditional, perhaps too conservative uh, organization. And um, it's an organization that would have stayed away from uh, any kind of civil rights or social justice matters in part because of its membership would be uninterested and perhaps wary of engaging in that. Uh, and the ally wanted to diversify. And so one very simple way of doing that was starting a project that would necessarily require the invitation of uh, several groups of uh, indigenous peoples, for example, to join the ALI. And so that's something that actually happened under our watch over the past decade. And we, we did get a little bit of a prelude of the complexity and the diversity of how many different types of people are trying to be mashed into this idea of federal American Indian law. And I'm curious, yeah, in this, in this specific branch of studying the law, you have the amalgamation of treaties, case law, statutes, uh, bureaucratic things such as the Bureau of Indian Affairs. How did, how did going about finding substantive content to try to find some through line work? And where did you find yourself mainly going to, to get black letter laws in, in a, a, an area of the law that that is really hard to find? I'll just jump in just because I've been silent for a bit. <laughs> it's not like we were starting from scratch. You know, there are um, some absolutely superb treatises in the field. Uh, the bookend treatises would be um, Cohen's Handbook on Federal Indian Law, which was um, first published in 1942, I believe, by the great legal realist Felix Cohen, um, hmm. who interestingly was affiliated with um, Weichler, um, who was one of the big giants in. Do I have that right? Am I pronouncing that right, Matthew? Herbert Wexler. Yes. Wexler. Uh, they were on the Columbia Law Review together, and he was a giant in the ALI. Um, and Felix Cohen was a giant in the field of federal Indian law. Some would say that he was the first 
scholar to put on paper the, the fundamental principles of the field. And then, uh, and that's, you know, the Cohen treatise is now in its, um, I don't know, fourth edition or something. Um, and it's constantly updated and it's a terrific resource. Uh, and then there's on the other end, a slightly more condensed than the Cohen handbook is um, Judge William Canby's um, nutshell on American Indian law, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. And we had, um, you know, as part of our advisory board, we had William Canby and we had um, some of the editors of the Cohen treatise. So we weren't starting from scratch, but we were trying to um, simplify the principles of law to crystallize them down to black letter, which is the charge, of course, of the American Law Institute to identify these principles in a succinct fashion with some more elaboration through the comments and then further elaboration um, and support through the reporter's notes. Um, hmm. Anyway, um, so we weren't starting from scratch, but we were engaged in a process that required a, 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 an awful lot of work to put it down in crystallized form. And I would like to point out one interesting aspect of this process, which is that generally the body of federal Indian law is federal law about uh, the powers of tribes and their relationships with the federal government and with the um, states. But it's not necessarily a law that has been, that is the product of tribes uh, with, with the exception of course of treaties. It's largely the product of non-Indians who have a history of um, enacting legislation and um, adjudicating cases involving Indian rights and even um, playing the primary roles of litigating before the Supreme Court. And one thing that's unique about um, the restatement is, as Matthew was mentioning, we brought in a team of advisors for the restatement who were really made up the brightest legal minds in this entire area of law, which consists of a significant percentage of native people from tribes across the country, from really diverse um, backgrounds. And we were able to apply their expertise throughout the process as well in helping us to ensure we were identifying the through lines in a correct way. And so I think that's really a unique uh, aspect of the restatement that stands out in my mind. I love hearing that, drilling into that. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that there were Native voices um, involved in this process. And, and I, I'd like to pick up on the fact that one of the perceptions of this field is that it's federal law about tribes, which is almost a unidirectional relationship, when in fact, that is not the way this actually goes. So I'm curious, those voices that you did have, did they talk about tribal governance? And did they add the ideas that the ways that tribes do manage resources, manage territory, manage, you know, prosecution of crimes in, in their sovereign lands, things like that? Um, did that make its way into the restatement or? Well, you know, the, the restatement is a, I know the night, the title of it is the restatement of the law of the American Indians, but really it's about federal Indian law. So we had a lot of native people who contributed in a lot of ways, but everybody comes to the project with their own angle. So if you have um, native people who primarily worked in the federal government, they look at what is useful for a federal bureaucrat, federal official to, um, to have in a, in a restatement project. Um, if you are looking at um, 
attorneys who represent tribes, say, in business transactions, like Kane is one of those people, um, then, then you, they look at the restatement from a perspective of what, what, what needs to be clarified in terms of um, the relationships between tribes and business uh, partners and federal and state jurisdiction, that sort of thing. Um, but there were definitely people who were tribal judges, who were um, represented tribes or who are Indian people themselves that um, looked upon the restatement as an opportunity to inject some justice into federal Indian law. Um, there's not a lot of play with that. There's not a lot that we could do. We were here to restate the law. We couldn't articulate much in terms of ways we thought the law should be. Um, that is just not the project of the ALI. So mm -hmm. um, that said, we had a lot of opportunity in what are known as reporter's notes, which are basically the footnotes to the actual restatement, where we could say, hey, you know, this, is, um, this law here is absolutely unjust. And Kane in particular was very much a, um, an advocate for uh, intense criticism in the reporter's notes of the doctrine of discovery, for example, out of Johnson versus McIntosh. He wanted to make it very clear that this was a doctrine rooted in ethnocentrism and outright racism. And, um, you know, we, we got some pushback for that, you know, mostly from people who are just not used to seeing that sort of critique. But um, it's our those are, those notes were reporters' notes, not advisors' notes. So we were able to um, keep that within the book. That was a that was an interesting moment in the restatement uh, process. Um, the discovery doctrine being the linchpin of federal Indian law, it justifies the the confiscation of of native lands and resources to the discovering Europeans. And um, it was just a really interesting moment in the process because. <clears throat> the restatement of uh, black letter law is considered the most authoritative um, language in the restatement then followed by the comments, but both the black letter and the comments are considered authoritative. Uh, the reporter's notes are just the reporter's notes. They're not authoritative. They're, you look to the reporter's notes for the authority that backs the black letter and the comments. And when we got to the discovery doctrine, I'm just going to call up the the um, document that I had, and you know we can just quickly restate what the, the what the discovery doctrine is. I mean, there's the notion that the discovery European nation takes title to the land upon discovery, um, subject to the um, original Indian title, which is really like just being a tenant, use and occupation exclusive use and occupation of the land um, until that property right is extinguished. Mm -hmm. This gross language of extinguishment and extinguishment can, can happen by conquest or it can be ha happen by treaty. But this notion that the discovering European power suddenly takes title just by virtue of planting its flag and saying, I'm here first is truly grounded in this fiction that the, um, Christian discovering nations, quote unquote, put discovering in, in quotes, somehow had um, this superiority over the indigenous Americans that gave them that what, you know, Chief Justice John Marshall called this extravagant proposition that they could take title. And so we drafted up the, um, I drafted a comment that said, by means of a fiction, 
grounded in presumed Christian superiority over indigenous Americans, the first quote, discovering close quotes, European sovereign gained quote, ultimate title to the land subject to the right of any given tribal nations continuing exclusive use and occupation, that is Aboriginal title until extinguished by the discovering sovereign. And we had a, a lively debate about whether that should be comment A um, in the restatement. And some members of the group said um, that they found it somewhat offensive. Others stood up and said, but it, it's really the, the underpinning of the very doctrine. And at one point, um, my favorite line in the discussion was when Judge Fletcher from the Ninth Circuit said, well, it may be offensive, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, um, these are these moments where one has to compromise, right? And uh, the executive director, Ricky Rivas, said that he thought that this should be in the reporter's notes so as not to stir the pot too much. And so we put it in the reporter's notes. And Johnson v. McIntosh is a, is a good vehicle to use to comment that this that's an 1823 case but you see the discovery doctrine popping up throughout the supreme court jurisprudence on these cases fighting over territory and and resource management so it's it's still very much present as you've noted using johnson v mcintosh a lot of what is the body of federal indian law is tracing what is the slow role of colonialism and Understandable that that is not ALI's mission with this restatement, but how did you struggle with including that stark fact in this restatement, and and where did where did your kind of guideposts land on that? One of the things that we did is we included uh, an introductory um, historic se historical section that provided an overview of the history of essentially the impact of federal Indian law and policy on Indian tribes, which is also the history of colonization of tribes and uh, removal and assimilation and termination. And so um, we were prioritized creating space at the very beginning of the restatement to discuss that history. Um, and so that was one of the important ways that we addressed that point. I would add that um... In reference to what Kane said earlier about Felix Cohen writing down for the first time the foundational principles of federal Indian law. Years ago, some of my mentors in the field, David Getchis and Charles Wilkinson, reminded me that those foundational principles are what kept Indian law a viable thing for Indian people in the middle part of the 20th century. It, it, at that time, you know, in the, at the end of the termination era, of federal Indian law where Congress tried to end all tribes. You know, the Supreme Court reminded Congress that congressional power in Indian affairs is uh, supreme, it is powerful, but there are constitutional limits on the ability of Congress to do the things it wanted to do, such as the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment or the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment or the First Amendment and its protection of religious freedom. So, uh, what we were able to do with these old cases that included an, an extraordinarily extraordinary amount of virulent racism was to pull principles from those cases that are critically important to tribes today. So, for example, Congress in 1978 passed the Indian Civil Rights Act. 
uh, excuse me, the Indian Indian Child Welfare Act. And um, a lot of Department of Justice attorneys argued to Congress that was unconstitutional. Some states argued it was unconstitutional, but it's absolutely constitutional under pretty basic principles of federal Indian law. And there was plenty of justification for it at that time and really to this day. Um, so a lot of things that one of the main goals, and I, I think you were gonna ask this question later on, but one of the main goals of the restatement project for me was to cement, truly cement the, the settled law because uh, we are all aware and have seen upfront judges and other parties who are ignorant of Indian law and shocked at some of the principles and doctrines that are, that do form the foundations of federal Indian law. Things like tribal sovereign immunity. A lot of judges are absolutely flabbergasted when they hear that an Indian tribe of all things has sovereign immunity or the notion that tribes have jurisdiction over their own children. <laughs> That's something that um, it can be in the first instance, very shocking to somebody who doesn't have experience in Indian law. And when they, they see that doctrine, we've seen it so many times where judges will desperately search for a reason to get around that doctrine. And uh, the restatement can help clarify and cement some of those things that are um, truly, truly settled law. And there is a bunch of that out there. And uh, so that's, uh, for me anyway, that was an extremely important part of this project. I specifically bring up in this moment, the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is currently before the United States Supreme Court, a series of cert petitions have been filed by states basically saying, gut completely throw out the Indian Child Welfare Act Supreme Court, all of these principles of federal Indian law must be reversed today. So it's a good time for the restatement to be done, to be frank, because these foundational principles are absolutely being challenged at the highest court of the land. Absolutely. And that is, uh, thank you for the transition into the goals of this restatement. I think one to pin down and crystallize for folks listening is this is a necessary thing to inform both judges and the general public about a really misunderstood area of the law that frankly needs to be understood because it is crucial and these things these things are coming up day over day. Um, let's drill in on other goals that you did have with this restatement. What else can this accomplish and what good can this do to different audiences of ALI? Well, I hope that another... Um accomplishment or goal of the restatement is to make Indian federal Indian law more accessible to lawyers, to practitioners, um, to academics. There are so many um, people in the legal profession who treat Indian law as a specialized niche, which is too complex for them to engage in. And uh, that's um, really unfortunate because it leads to a lot of professors, for example, not incorporating concepts related to the existence of tribes and tribal sovereignty in their courses, when in fact this is their, um, the third sovereign in the United States and they uh, are important um, self-governing um, entities in, the, in, the, in this country. And so I would like the restatement hopefully to um, provide 
you know, a concise um, summary of the law that is uh, more accessible um, to people who are new to it so that they will engage with it and feel more comfortable, um, uh, you know, understanding these concepts, incorporating them in their legal practice um, and teaching them in classes. I'll, I'll add to that as well that um, I think there was a real practical, as, as Winona and Matthew have both said, um, goal here to allow um, the field to be more accessible. And that really, for me, rang out um, in the drafting of chapter four, which I was responsible for on economic development in Indian country. Um, we broke that down into two sections, tribes as economic regulators and tribes as economic actors. And what often baffles judges is that tribes are both economic regulators and economic actors. Tribes have to generate governmental revenue through tribal enterprises more so than other governments because they don't have tax bases. So when tribes engage in gaming, for example, um, they're engaged in a governmental activity. Um, they are generating governmental revenues in the same way that state lotteries or state liquor stores do. And there's a series of cases that have really treated tribes as if they're private enterprises um, because they engage in gaming um, when in fact, this is clearly a tribal government activity, even though it looks like um, a private casino. So we were able to clarify that, I think, better for the courts and for uh, practitioners. Um, but uh, in addition, um, in the field of economic development, when non-tribal entities are engaged in businesses with tribes or tribal enterprises, it can be very complicated to figure out where a particular transaction can be enforced. Um, whether a federal court would have jurisdiction to enforce um, an economic obli obligation in Indian country, um, and even whether state courts may have jurisdiction. And if either the state courts or the federal courts have jurisdiction, whether um, the tribal court might also have concurrent jurisdiction. And if the tribal court has concurrent jurisdiction, do you have to exhaust tribal remedies before you pursue remedies in either forum? Can those um, rights be waived um, by a tribe or are they more sacrosanct like subject matter jurisdiction and can't be waived? These questions have baffled practitioners uh, for years. And some of them actually I, I confronted as a practitioner myself um, when we helped tribes uh, engage in economic development. So um, it was a real motivating factor undergirding chapter four anyway to lay out the principles that will help guide um, the lawyers who are actually trying to engage in economic development um, efforts in Indian country. And that, circling back to what Winona was saying, that is crucial. And in some instances, you are, this, this restatement is beginning at ground zero with some of the judges and, and practitioners that do exist out there. But this, this body of law can be, studying it can be extremely useful for understanding jurisdiction overall in this country and understanding both how the tribes interplay with federal and state interactions, because this is a vehicle for, for studying that. And that's essential for practitioners, practitioners to know. I agree. Any other goals of the restatement? We have, we have practicability. We have 
the goal of information. We have the goal of arming uh, practitioners with, with actual knowledge and black letter law of this. What about tribal audiences? How can this restatement help those that are looking to continue self-governing? So I, you know, I came up as a young lawyer working in house for Indian tribes, and um, I had a lot of interaction negotiating contracts and public safety agreements with attorneys in state and local governments and occasionally uh, small businesses that had no experience with Indian affairs. They wanted to do business with a the tribe. They wanted to cooperate with the tribe, but just didn't understand any of the nuances. And, you know, they were lawyers, so they looked things up and they saw, you know, cases like Worcester v. Georgia from 1832 that says state law is no force in Indian country. And I, I had uh, local attorneys tell me, well, I can't enter into a cross-deputization agreement between our two uh, police departments because, because that's what Worcester v. Georgia says. That's not what Worcester v. Georgia says. But I think that uh, a restatement project is authoritative enough and simple enough to use that um, an attorney can pull it off the, the bookshelf. Um, it's going to be thinner than the Cohen Handbook on Federal Indian Law, which is very comprehensive. And then it sort of branches off into a few things that are very specific, like economic development, um, and Indian Child Welfare Act, gaming, uh, natu natural resources, including treating, treaty rights, criminal jurisdiction. So you can go right to the place you need to and um, go for the black letter law in the first instance. And you will find a piece of black letter law definitely in chapter three that says tribes and states can enter into intergovernmental agreements, full stop. Um, so that would have been really helpful for me as a practitioner when I was dealing with outsiders, um, outsiders to the field. I would add that really a core function of the ALI in adopting restatements is to talk to judges. And one of the ways they do that is to incorporate the input of judges into the advisory program. So as a general matter, ALI has three groups. One third of the members of ALI are supposed to be judges. One third are practitioners and another third are academics. And that's how they like to divide their advisory and um, expert advisory uh, groups. So we had a fair number of judges. We've already mentioned um, Judge Canby out of the Ninth Circuit. We've already mentioned Willie Fletcher out of the Ninth Circuit. We also had uh, Diane Wood in the Seventh Circuit, uh, Patty Millett out of the D.C. Circuit. We had some state and local and lower level uh, dis federal district court judges. Um, they didn't. It, it's a tricky. It's a tricky thing for them to articulate a normative position, and they really can't do it. Um, but what they're absolutely amazing at, and probably the greatest input that we got in the project, uh, bit by bit, was where we would articulate a piece of black letter law or something in the comments and the judges would just look up and say, I can't use that. What I would like to use as a judge is something that is a statement that I can just cut and paste into an opinion, then go directly to the footnotes and see the cases that I need to see in order to justify it. And um, so every little word, everything, commas, all the way down to commas, semicolons, um, passive voice, everything was, uh, was uh, looked upon by all the people who read the restatement. We had comments coming from all different directions, but I always thought that the judicial comments were the most useful um, and incisive. Now, they didn't speak much about the substance of the law. They were looking at how you, how, what the utility of the restatement is. 
And I think that's something that um, a project like this does a lot for um, the field. You know, a, a treatise, there are multiple treatises on any law, there are case books. I've got my own horn book, I can say whatever I want in my horn book. <laughs> but, um, you know, this project is really a, uh, a creation of kind of like a, a, a project by committee, which can be, frankly, maddening at times. Yeah. Um, but if you get consensus from that committee uh, and you do well to write it so that it is a has a certain utilitarian aspect to it, has a utility, then um, then it can be really influential. And I think the judges are the ones that that are that participate in this this kind of project that they're not necessarily involved in, say, with the Cohen Handbook on Federal Indian Law or the other treatises. The exception, of course, is the fact of the nutshell, which is uh, written by a Ninth Circuit judge. And if I spent a lot of time reading that nutshell, he does not mess around. Um, it is um, if reading that nutshell from that Ninth Circuit judge with 50 years experience teaches you how to write a restatement. I'd like to add also that another purpose of the restatement is uh, sort of a reaction to the fact that our country is um, in a period of incredibly divided partisan politics. And there are so many who question and have doubts who are um, suspicious about claims that might be made, whether they are legal claims or um, factual claims. And I think that um, one of the benefits of the restatement is that it's um, a product of an institute that is representative of all branches of the legal profession with a vast membership that is made up of people from um, both sides of the aisle, as well as individuals from attorneys general offices, as well as who um, those who represent um, the Solicitor General's Office of the United States, for example, um, as well as those who uh, now, those in, who also have a history of representing tribal interests. And I think that um, hopefully um, one of the results of that um, sort of mass participation of um, luminaries from the legal profession um, will give the uh, restatement an authoritative um, aspect that will make it um, more persuasive um, for judges and practitioners to apply. And then one of the natures of restatement is that if in an opinion a judge were to incorporate a piece of that restatement, it does then become presidential law, correct? So this this has this has an immense amount of potential impact to have, um, both in a utilitarian sense and in a bit of a a prescriptive sense of of solving some of the lack of clarity that does exist in this body of law. That's fantastic. So I appreciate knowing more about the purposes. I'd like to ask in the process of creating this restatement, uh, what was what's the proudest thing that you got into the restatement? What are you most proud of um, and have the most hope for? There's a section in the restatement that I wrote probably on the very first day that we started working on this. Um, and it was the very last thing that we debated um, to the very end. It's the authority of the power of tribes effectively to sue the United States government for money damages for a breach of trust primarily. So I wrote that black letter, the original draft, by drawing from Supreme Court cases out of the last 20 years or so, really 30 years, that um, articulate a series of propositions that have been repeated over and over again 
in the Supreme Court decision. So I cut and paste it, put it in the black letter, and I thought nobody's going to argue with this. Everybody hated it. The people who represented tribes thought, well, these cases are, should, are wrongly decided. The, the people who represented the United States government, Department of Justice, some of whom have argued these cases, hated it because it didn't defer enough to federal sovereign immunity. Uh, the people who read the restatements for clarity uh, hated it because the Supreme Court used wildly agrammatical language when articulating these rules. And frankly, the reason that these rules were so confusing is that the court um, put a gloss on top of relatively clear federal statutes called the Indian Tucker Act. Um, really, there's two statutes, the Tucker Act and the Indian Tucker Act. If you take the language of the Tucker Act, it says federal courts are open for suits for money damages in such context. And then the Indian Tucker Act says Indian tribes can bring those claims too. That's all those statutes say. And I'm paraphrasing, frankly. Uh, so we off and on debated very vociferously about what that language should say. It occurred to me that maybe I should just quote the statutes themselves and put that in as the black letter. And so I combined the relevant language from each statute, put it into one black letter uh, piece of language. How can you argue with the language of Congress? Which actually, and we made it so that it looked a lot more grammatical than the way the Supreme Court did it. And then we took the language the Supreme Court used and quoted that and put it in the comments. Um, the Supreme Court, for whatever reason, reasons that I wildly disagree with, has imposed additional requirements on tribes to, to bring money damages that are not included in the statute. This is just something the court at the invitation of the Department of Justice has done. But more or less by just quoting Congress and putting that, elevating that language, which to the place, the rightful place it should be, which is in the black letter, um, you can see how the court is actually wrong in imposing those additional obligations on tribes, what we call a two-bar determination. But to respect the court, um, we put it in the comments and said, the court interprets the language we just gave you to require these additional things. And we were a little more careful about articulating that. Nobody could argue with it at that point. Uh, there were a few other things that we included in there that we were you know, forced to give up at the last minute in the comments section. But you know, long run, people that are new to this area are going to go back and look at the actual statute, not what the Supreme Court imposed on top of the statute. Um, my, my view is if we come back to this project decades later, Maybe there'll be some cases out there that actually are much more honest about what the statute requires, as opposed to what the Supreme Court in 1980 and in 2003 in particular decided to add on to the statute um, to, to give more deference to the United States that Congress never intended. So I think that, that that's not really a win yet, but it's a place where um, the ALI can be more intellectually I'm not going to say intellectually honest. I'm going to say intellectually clear about what the law actually is. I'd like to add that one thing that I think is really insignificant, significant about this restatement is that unlike so many other restatement projects, which are efforts to revise and amend existing work products, this restatement was developed from scratch. And, uh, and that's... Um, I really think that that's a phenomenal um, 
achievement. And I'm really grateful for all the individuals um, who were advisors and members of the members consultative group um, who stuck with this project over 10 years, um, who consistently provided their insight and support and their comments and critiques all along the way. And so we have so many um, uh, individuals, whether um, they're attorneys or judges or uh, academics who just have been so helpful throughout this entire process. I can't believe that it's been 10 years. It seems to have gone by pretty quickly, but um, I don't think there's any other project that I've worked on for this duration. And so that feels like a pretty singular um, accomplishment. They do say time flies when you're amassing the black letter law. So that, that <laughs> maximum holds. Uh, one moment that I, that really stands out for me, um, and we were talking about the restatement in, an, in another session for the Michigan Bar Association about a month ago, uh, and I brought this example up, um, was when we were grappling with whether state courts would have jurisdiction over a transaction arising in Indian country um, when the non-tribal entity or citizen is suing the tribe, the tribal enter enterprise, um, even if there's a waiver of sovereign immunity because of the Students of federal Indian law know the 1956 decision of Williams v. Lee, in which the Supreme Court said that the state court had no jurisdiction over a contract action brought by a trading post against a Navajo citizen, and that the exclusive jurisdiction over that claim rested in the Navajo tribal court. Um, and early in my career, in some of the economic transactions that um, we were assisting our clients with, that is tribal clients um, with some substantial banks um, involved, um, worried a lot about whether a state court would have jurisdiction over a, trans over a transaction like a loan agreement uh, executed and arising uh, in an Indian reservation brought by a non-tribal citizen against the tribe or a tribal enterprise because of Williams v. Lee. Uh, and when I drafted the restatement section to say that if a tribal tribal enterprise consents to state court jurisdiction, then the state court would have jurisdiction. There were a number of very influential people in our group that took issue with that uh, because of Williams v. Lee. But luckily I had in my pocket a recent, very recent, like a 2019 Washington Supreme Court, state of Washington Supreme Court decision that um, laid out exactly why there would be state court subject matter jurisdiction in a, in a situation where a tribe consented because the underpinnings of Williams v. Lee disappear, the, all the policy reasons for tribal sovereignty disappear once you have the consent of the tribe. But um, it, took some, it took some work, right, in that session. Um, not only from me, but from um, colleagues who you know regularly engage in this work to tell um, the other members of the committee that they were wrong. And again, luckily we had this um, Washington Supreme Court decision and a couple of others to support our position. And now it's the black letter. Yeah, now it's the black letter. That's been getting to right some of the wrongs that you've seen in the past and build that in. It, a testament to the, the wealth of knowledge that you all are bringing to this. So. 
I'm curious, we are doing our symposium focused on the restatement of American Indian law. To our listeners, how would you uh, invite them to prepare for that symposium? And what would you have them look at as they walk in the doors um, and make sure that they get the most out of that event? They should pick a chapter that they're interested in. I, I, I confess that um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay silent in large part, especially to the, to the scholars who are coming in. Uh, and the practitioners and judges are coming in to comment on the thing, some of whom worked on this project from the beginning, but many are new to the project. So um, I don't want to bias their, uh, their perception of what they're about to see. But I would say this, that, you know, from the beginning, uh, people who worked on other ALI projects told me that there are going to be things that you win about win and things that you lose and things that you uh, wanted to include and couldn't, that sort of thing. And um, so I, on one hand, I, as the sort of the lead reporter, I don't really have, uh, I do have sort of an intele uh, intellectual and emotional investment in this thing, but um, I want people to look at it in the first instance and really take a very critical eye toward it, um, the good and the bad. And I'm, I'm super excited to see what people say, I mean, this is sort of a project that, you know, we, I, I lovingly refer to as like working with the Illuminati, you know, we <laughs> sometimes meet in relatively dark rooms at night. And, uh, you know, we can't really talk about what we're doing. It's not something we can widely share. So I'm just excited about unveiling this thing and see what people think. I like it. Keep an open mind. Winona, what do you think? Um, I think that I'm, just hopeful that um, people will also take note of the fact that federal Indian law is a very dynamic area of law. And um, I think there's going to be um, some attention or concern uh, regarding the fact that we still have developing decisions in this area of law that will affect the restatement. And um, I think people should be um, open-minded and reflect on the fact that um, it's, you know, just as many other restatements have been revised and updated, so will this um, document need to be revised and updated. Um, so, but, you know, I think that we should definitely um, uh, discuss the weaknesses of this restatement, given that it's a uh, very dynamic, um, fast-changing area of law, but, um, but also keep in mind the potential for the, the future changes to the document. And we will send a calendar invite for a decade for now for uh, the second restatement and walking <laughs> through that as well. So one of the through lines of our conversation today has been a bit of a lament of the fact that both those inside of the legal industry, judges, practitioners, and those outside don't have a good comprehension of what the, the body of Indian law does make up. So I'd like to ask, in the interest of continuing education, what type of media, what book, what podcast would you send our listeners to, to either begin or continue their education of, of, you know, breaking down some of those misconceptions that do exist? Well, you mentioned podcasts. And so I'd like to um, endorse uh, This Land, uh, Rebecca Nagel's excellent podcast. And uh, it's produced incredibly well. And the current season is focused on the challenge, the legal challenge to ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act. 
And so that's um, very accessible, something you can listen to during your commute or while you're running or walking. Um, so that's one that I'd like to highlight. I think that in the last couple of decades, there have been some really good television and television shows and movies that have highlighted the, the, the jurisdictional complexities of Indian country, primarily in the criminal area. Um, you know, one of the bigger issues in Indian country and indig indigenous peoples around the world is the problem of violence against uh, Native women and children. So um, stories like uh, movies like Wind River, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily advocate them in terms of being particularly accurate about Indian law, but they really do highlight the, the real issues that are in play that, um, you know, we like to think a project like this can help to clarify some thought about. And um, so, you know, and, you know, it's very likely that Congress really any day, but um, in the next 10 years likely will uh, ratchet up tribal sovereignty to allow for additional tribal authority over non-members of the tribe, non-Indians, criminal, additional criminal jurisdiction powers. And a project like this can help to clarify the constitutional um, rights of the people who are charged by tribes, but also the, the constitutional powers of Congress to, to make the, that determination. And um, that's a project that uh, the restatement, I think, can, can be particularly helpful in. You know, you, you see this stuff in the, in the news, uh, missing and murdered indigenous women and, and other indigenous people. You see television shows about it, some of whom are, some of which are kind of comical, like Reservation Dogs. Uh, but even that show um, highlights some of the issues related to the, the jurisdictional lines of federal Indian law, particularly the ones involving the tribal police officer. Hmm. Uh, there's a really excellent newsletter that I subscribe to called Indigenously decolonizing your newsfeed, hmm. uh, which has sort of a thematic uh, weekly theme to it that I think um, has done a terrific job of um, illuminating the, the nuances that are involved in understanding Indian country, tribal sovereignty, and uh, the struggles of indigenous peoples here and Canada. I'll have to, I'll have to subscribe indigenously. That's fantastic. Well, any closing words for us? Any uh, any parting thoughts? I don't know. I don't believe in them. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. It should be fun. Yeah, thank you so much for hosting and organizing. Absolutely. We really appreciate all of your time. Um, this is great. And I definitely have learned a lot so far. So thank you so much.